arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Listen to those propeller-driven planes. Saul and the Saul Domain are half-trapped in the present technology and loop back to the gasoline-powered era of the past. Ross and his father slowly come to understanding each other. Surrounded by the Elias sect, they move into the heart of battle, complete with the gasoline airplanes and the gasoline-powered jeeps. And with battle comes death and the threat of revacking with capture. During the battle, confrontations occur in orbit above Scavia Tangle and death. All as the Elias sect tries to explain the meaning of life to Ross, but Ross does not want to hear it. Here is Episode 5, Reunion, by Robert P. Fitton, Galactic Command, beginning now. Chapter 27 The jagged buildings were silhouetted in the morning sun and drew his eye like a focal point in a landscape painting. Before sunrise, the old man had listened to some space communications and confirmed the combined tug drags no longer shot into the sky and ESS-14 and ESS-27 had indeed fought a shot battle, but the communication from both ships had ceased. Ross sat on a snow-dusted rock next to his father. I'm going to assume they were casually somewhere. The old man raised his left brow as he usually did as he listened. Plonus data transmissions are constant to the planet, yet the vessels are not presently moving. Standoff. Ploy, asked Ross. The old man shook his head. No, but I am picking up transmissions. Saul is abandoning the planet and transporting in an SAV up to where? To ESS-27. But he's left the Zuloff contingents around the landing strip in the city. Old-style airplanes for orbital transport are bringing in the other Zuloff. And we're stuck in this icebox. His brow remained furrowed as he looked increasingly annoyed. Silkowski hobbled through the tree break and into the clearing. His eyes reflected an inner pain, and the gristly gray beard gave the appearance of a professor. Any word on O'Hara? Ross looked to his father. The old man shook his head. Headed to ESS-27. They get my ship, they'll have two, said Ross. The old man squinted when the thoughts coalesced into his head. Conchu is in peril. Approaching peacefully, two ships might take Conchu easily. Three definitely would. I fear revacking by low-flying crafts. His father shook his head and removed the earphone. They won't waste their time with us now, because they have two ships. We'd better hope my signal was picked up by command. Cobb. Where in the city can we transmit a stronger updated signal? Well, at the revacking chambers, said Silkowski. You can easily send signals to command, providing they haven't taken the equipment with them. Ross slowly faced the city and the orange sun's piercing beams over the ocean horizon. The old man stood. How do we stop them, Dad? Maybe we can't. By late morning, the strategic situation was more complex than Ross had thought. Saul City's building shadows were mixed with a highlighted winter light, 
and the remaining Zulof conclaves ringed the lower neighborhood buildings to the bay, and truck convoys constantly patrolled the battle-torn streets. Resistance was quelled, according to the old man's monitoring, but Ross worried more about the old-style propeller-driven aircraft arriving and departing at the landing strip near the water. Ross saw another winged craft circling over the Bay Mountains. Dad, the ones who are left don't have sophisticated scans or they would have seen us. Agreed. Your vessel from Earthstar. It's at the landing strip, or it was, as was Cappy's ship. Ross's stomach tightened as he thought of his family revacked with synthetic pathways. The Elias members chanted to the Bane Orvius in a field rounding below the small, forested knoll to the left. They truly believe this Messiah will arrive, according to our people in the field, before the Marsavix people's parceling of the galaxy. Reports indicated odd activity on the Sirius 11th planet. What kind of activity? Miracles and a mass following. Ross put his hands on his hips and laughed. All such things are easily explained. No, son. Am I talking to the cool and rational Colonel John Ross, a.k.a. Admiral Bender? The old man stood as the Elias sect's soft chanting continued. His gray-blue eyes were moist. I've had a long career performing and executing, as you say, in a cool and rational way. That's how you make your best judgments and stay alive. Well, these people are religious fanatics. Maybe. As rational as I can be, I know that things exist beyond our level of understanding. Then you think the Bane Orvius will arrive? I can't say that either, but it is possible. They believe that the Bane Orvius will bring them to perfection in this life in preparation for the life after death. I know for a fact that you don't believe in life after death. His father's face flattened as he slowly shook his head. Rationally, an afterlife is ludicrous. So are the perry fields and breakaway speed. <laughs> you must be weakened from our little excursion here. Perry's and Eldred's coil breakaway are scientific facts. I've met Dr. Howard Ellison, protege of Eldridge. He deduced the dimensional travel within the Marsavic system from scientific data. And if you didn't possess that scientific data, you had no knowledge of the data, and you witnessed dimensional travel, you would call it a miracle. Well, maybe. Ross turned from the cult. I would call it something I don't understand. The old man held his shoulders. John, we gloat in our scientific knowledge and accomplishment. Every generation, even back to Earth before space expansion, they all think they are the most intelligent specimens ever spawned. We know precious little of what is beyond this universe. Ross wanted to say something poignant, but he couldn't think of what he should say. The cult members, their heads bowed in the field, were silent now. He slowly crossed the frozen gravel road. From within, he experienced not only the rationality of what the old man was saying, but a simple feeling of possibility. All his life, just as his father, he had stressed the possibility of the rational and the knowable. Now he accepted another possibility. Everything is rational and knowable, but maybe his own intelligence, maybe the intelligence of the entire human species, was incapable of deducing such things that made no sense. The old man put his hand on Ross's shoulder. The ancient Greeks on Samos, they unlocked the beginnings of science. The preservation of their knowledge made it possible for the Industrial Revolution after the Dark Ages on Earth. 
I wouldn't call those people stupid, but they would be incapable of understanding space travel or how perifields create gravity on an explorer spaceship. In fact, they would not even understand gravity, John. They could only trust in things greater than they could. Do you understand? I don't know, Aristothenes. He turned Ross around and his gray eyes were intense and cold. Someday you will. Ross's concentration was quickly broken by the sound of an air transport's gasoline engines just over the trees. Arkhub and the Elias sect members remained in the field, but Ross and the old man rushed under the trees with the resistance members. The plane's six-winged propellers were visible, spinning only a few hundred feet down the ridge as it approached the linear, well-marked landing strip several kilometers near the bay. We're damn lucky they were landing and not engaging in surveillance, said the old man as they ran back to the group. His scanner blinked yellow. What's that? He sat on a rock and placed the headphone over his ear. His brow tightened and then creased. Damn. Dad, what is it, Saul? The old man looked up. He was back in his rational, controlled mode. I have to compliment your assessment, son. Your ship, what about it? It has just begun dearthing this planet. Oh, how efficient, said Ross, turning toward the landing strip. And we all die unless Saul surrenders or we contact the ship. I compliment Crutch Kuczynski on his action. Ross checked his compact readout time. I would estimate we have probably four hours before this place becomes a rock-scarred, airless chunk of matter in space. Chapter 28 the sect members refused any direct confrontation with the Zuloff. In the late afternoon shadows, Ross, his body encompassed by yellow light, clamped his frozen hands against the antique automatic weapon's cold metal shaft. He held the gun upright as he darted down a dark and cracked asphalt alleyway. Fearing casualties if they grouped together, the old man ordered them to the revac plant, approaching from alternate directions. But he sent Ross to find the hotel vessel on the landing strip. Attempting to get into space and contacting Kaczynski was yet another option to prevent a certain death when dearthing was complete. Without a good view of the landing strip, Ross was unable to determine whether Saul had indeed left the planet. His compact strapped to his upper arm, the red digit timer counting down the time until the planet was fully dearthed, brightened in the shadows. Three Zuloff rounded the corner, rifle barrels flashed orange and shots cracked down the wooden clapboards lining the alley. Ross pelted them with lead bullets and backed into the open doorway behind him. He sprinted through an abandoned residence. Metal chairs were twisted and a wooden table splintered across a soiled, debris-laden rug. He kicked back the rear door and squeezed outside. As he shuffled down another alley's narrow walls, he gazed up at the aqua sky and a stark realization shrouded his thoughts. Every minuscule matter particle on this planet including the crack walls, the cobblestones, even his own body, was now surrounded by slowly accruing dearth fields. When at a minimum threshold, the dearth fields would cause a matter collapse for less than a second, and dust would rise from the excoriated planet's surface. His breath spewed a cloudy mist as his boots pattered along more uneven asphalt and concrete chunks. Getting to the landing strip now seemed possible. He backed into a green-framed alcove doorway and checked the undulating hill. More Zuloff gathered about a flattened lot, several hundred meters past rows of blasted brick walls and leveled buildings. The open landing strip extended to the deepening green bay. 
As more gunfire erupted, Ross cut diagonally across the concrete road toward another alley. The high thin clouds moved in quickly across the sky and provided an indirect light over the dirt-smeared stucco walls. He repeatedly thought about his revac family and his second-in-command. Trying to reverse internal changes, even with Tsiolkovsky's efforts, was not practical. He stuck his head into the alley. A major boulevard materialized within the brightness at the end of the alley. With the gun pointed upward, he rounded the corner onto the sidewalk. The curved street, divided by a center strip with unlit, dented aluminum pole lamps, dipped toward the rusted chain-link fence perimeter around the landing strip. Scaling the fence links was an easy feat, but he was sure the area was patrolled. From the building shadows, he spotted the long black hotel craft in the intense sunset light beyond the snow-laced yellow grass. He checked the vacant street and then bolted across the chipped, raised cement medium. His boots tapped the smooth sidewalk in a syncopated rhythm. Then he cut through the dry grass down the hill. The fence ahead had a lower trench with crisscross metal spikes and sharp curved metal shavings. He wondered just how he would gain entry onto the landing strip. He was a half a kilometer away from the main boulevard. The sporadic gunfire was persistent but scattered over the hills and along the side streets. The old man was probably near the revac plant by now. His father's admission of trust in unseen things still baffled Ross. Maybe he just plain didn't know his father. As he moved through the dry leaves along the fortified trench, he tried to recall why he would have assumed the old man had no religious yearnings. Perhaps he did not. Yet he was parroting, merging beliefs with things not yet understood, part of the Elias sex mantra. The fence continued along the rolling scrub brushes extending to the deep bay waters. Oh. Ross slowly turned his head, did not move the weapon. A man in the same drab, gray Zuloff uniform stepped over the knoll. Your weapon you will drop. Ross quickly complied. You have to listen to me. This planet is being dearthed. Identity of you in the outside fence you are. I need to get inside. Reback and implement. Reback you are not. He raised his weapon to Ross's head. Brought in the plant you will be. You fool! This planet is about to be turned to dust! The Cyback ordered him to drop the rifle and the soldier's gun barrel pushed against his backbone. He was marched along the trench. The top of the next knoll revealed a tunnel entrance and camouflaged transport planes on the grass. Situated next to a small hangar, the long black hotel craft was silhouetted in the shadows. He didn't see Cappy's vessel. Maybe getting inside the fence was a good thing. Getting revacked was not. Once beyond the fence and inside the landing strip facility, he might break away and make it to the hotel craft. Two Cybacks with raised rifles stood rigid at the tunnel entrance and saluted the Cyback with Ross. Another glazed-eyed Cyback stormed up to Ross. To transport truck, you will be brought. The revac plant, you will go. You rogues don't understand what's going on here. This planet is being encompassed by dearth fields. Revac and implement. You damn fools! We'll be incinerated in a few hours! He stuck his rifle in Ross's gut. Revac and implement. Listen to me! The planet... Revac. Revac. You stupid fools! To the truck. Ross reluctantly stepped into the concrete tunnel lighted by long white tubes. A glare was visible a couple of hundred meters up the asphalt slope. He vowed to die before being revac'd. 
The room above had a glass span overlooking the hangar and the hotel craft. More uniform Zulofs stood like solid tree trunks inside the semi-circular facility. A transport truck engine sputtered outside the open door. Fumes seeped inside. Ross turned before he stepped outside. You have to let me contact- No contact. Revac 2 won't be. They shoved him into the cold air. He surveyed the city hills as they forced him inside the wood rail truck bed. A bunch of Cybacs climbed in behind him and aimed their rifles in unison. He studied their marble eyes and flat affect. Maybe they were citizens of the city. Once human, certain of a future now with no choice. The truck jolted forward. The engine cranked as they skirted the chain link fence, whipped by the scrub brush where he'd first approach. Again, he studied the sleek hotel vessel to his right, but the pointed Cybac rifles prevented him from vaulting the truck rails. In the breezy, cold air, he thought about his last voyage to the nebula planet, and Nancy Burke's sphere was somewhere rotating through space, and his thoughts also drifted back to the tiny Marsarvik with his clustered blue eyes. The technology to shift an entire section of the galaxy into another galaxy defied his reasoning ability. Advanced beings such as the Mersavik would understand how to reverse the revacking process, but their technology and the advanced Mersavik mind were light years away. Sokoski would have to undercover the mechanism to bring men such as the Zulof and the truck, as well as his estranged family, back to thinking like human beings. He was ordered off the truck and shoved up the brick-faced revac plant stairs. Again, he affirmed death over revacking. The white, caged light brightened overhead as he reached the upper level, but he was stunned to see his father under guard near a tall, opaque window. Dad, the old man nodded once. Have you told these rogues that this planet is about to be vaporized? Ross thought the old man might be revacked, but his eyes were clear. Are you all right? He nodded again. John, the dearth fields diminished 28 minutes ago. What? Something is wrong up there. Maybe Crutch realized we were down here. No, I don't think that's it. I postulate another encounter with ESS-27 has taken place. ESS-14 may be disabled or even destroyed. The sinking feeling in Ross's gut was only overcome with the anger against Saul and the Antarian. Damn them! The old man slowly smiled and placed his hand on Ross's shoulder. I was wrong. Wrong about what? Your command. Your choice. I'm proud of you, son. Ross's eyes filled. You have no idea what that means to me. It's imperative, if one of us survives, to use all means to get Sokoski to solve the reversal problem, protect his safety, and allow him and the personnel and the facilities to accomplish this end, even if they take Sigma Antares. I understand. He looked at the Zulof. I wonder why our friends haven't revacked us already. Interesting. The old man panned the facility. Ross tapped his fingers on the wall. Keep telling myself Mom is all right. His throat tightened. Cappy, all Cappy wanted was a reunion. I know, and I'd like to promise Silkowski will unlock the revac reversal. The chance you take when you engage in radical experiments. His father stared at the Zulof as he spoke. I knew something of the security sum reports from Pegasus Mirachelli years ago. Sloppy. No one paid attention because they thought they had it all under control. People walking around without clearance, data banks left lying around. In that climate, I'm not surprised Silkowski and O'Hara got out. 
The unfortunate part is what happened on this planet. I need to know what's going on up there, said Ross, gritting his teeth as he looked upward. There must be a transmitter here in this building. The only transmitter we know of is in that hotel vessel. I don't think these clowns are going to give us a tour of the landing strip. My contention is that either Saul or the Antarian is headed here. But you think ESS-27 was disabled. You're assuming that they stopped the dearthing. Call it a gut feeling. No, Crutch wouldn't let them maneuver. He's, he's too smart not to cover himself. They might have tricked your people. You know from personal experience how clever the Antarians can be. That's how Rafak has come as far as he has. Ross shook his head and his body tensed as he folded his arms. We have to make a move now. How? The elder Ross squinted. I'll be the one to divert them. You have youth. Get on the outside to the hotel vessel. Alert command before they reach Sigma Terrace. Risky, said Ross, rubbing his hands in the cold air. Delay will cost us, he said, stepping forward. Ross grabbed his arms, but the old man turned and faced him. John, you're basing a decision on what you think will happen and with your loyalties to your crew. No, no, just hold tight. These Cyvaks have one-dimensional thoughts. We can fool them easily. No, I want to wait. Okay, one final thing, and you already know this. Sigma is far enough away from Baroma to allow rebacking to take place especially with the portable chambers and the ability to sweep the populations from above. And they'll be armed with ships and Zulof troopers. This is a direct threat to the sector. Command needs to launch a full attack. My people would have alerted Command. Maybe. I'm not convinced this dearthing has stopped, said Ross. John, I took the readings myself. Ross shook his head and faced the old man. Then maybe they started it again. No. Something is wrong if the dearthing has stopped. As he spoke, a group of Zulofs scurried up the ramp. They fanned their guns, but they didn't shoot. Two additional Cybaks in their silver Antarian uniforms walked ahead of Rafak in the corner. The little white-haired Serban wore a full-dress uniform with side medals and a holstered shooter. His green teeth spread when he spotted Ross. Ross half-closed his eyes and pressed his lips. Saul rounded the corner below and fired a shooter rifle into the ceiling. Behind Saul, Crutch Kuczynski and Gil Webb were marched along with Rip up the ramp. Ross clenched his fists. What are you doing with my people? Crew, rebound, there will be, shouted Saul. They hit us blindside, John, with drag bubbles while we casually dearth the planet, said Crutch. I take full responsibility, John. Saul escorted the three members of his crew down to the chambers. Ross bared his teeth at Rafak. The Zulof rushed in and held him back. No! Rafak scampered across the concrete and his red eyes focused on Ross. So we meet again, my human friend. Don't call me friend, yelled Ross. This revacking will not succeed. You have defamed my honor, Ross. The complot will be satisfied. You shameless Stymander. Rafak smiled again. Humans should not be allowed to use Antarian words. It is not ethical. Ross leaned through the Zulof rifle barrels. What do you know about ethics? You and your mutated race of killers? His red eyes opened wide. You will watch while the others are being revacked. You will watch them serve the new Antarian order. Revac and implement. 
shouted Saul from the chamber entrance. Ross watched in horror as inside the support arms the chamber brightened to an orange glare. At that moment the old man darted left and nearly made it to the ramp. Five Zulofs surrounded him, but his arms were finally secured and he was dragged back to Rafik. Rafik produced a five-sided Antarian knife. Ross recognized it from the land battles during the war. In a single motion, he swiped the old man's throat. Ross reached out and locked eyes with his father. For a moment, the old man's consciousness seemed to fly by. His eyes closed in a burst of blood and he fell to the concrete. Ross kicked four of the Zuloff and chopped the knife from Rafik's hand. He thrust his finger toward the little Antarian's nose in order to push the cartilage into his brain. But Rafik turned. Ross punctured his eyes. The disoriented Zuloff swung their rifles. Ross started left and rolled up the ramp through a volley of gunfire. Saul babbled loudly as Ross rounded the ramp corner and kicked the side window. Why, why, we back and implement. Get him, you will. Get him, you will. Ross, Ross. Huge sheets of glass fell like guillotine blades and the cold air leaked in from outside. His father's quick death blurred like the stars behind the swift-moving clouds above the city. He heard the commotion on the ramp and leaped onto the lower roof. Lead bullets tore up the roof granules, but Ross pivoted at the edge and spotted a sloping, silver-corrugated conduit. With the encroaching gunfire, he dove forward, caught the edge of the tube, and swung onto the snow-crusted dirt. Anger surged through his stomach as he ran on the slippery asphalt. The city buildings were silhouetted against the darkening sky, and the white artificial light illuminated the streets. The old man was dead, and Rafik had murdered him. Revenge dominated his thoughts as he ran on the chewed-up road near the chain-link fence surrounding the plant. Five Zulof were stationed at the plant's green metal shack. He approached like a panther, twisting in slow motion from the darkness, but he questioned whether he even needed to attack. None of the human Cybacks noticed him slip through the shadows along the fence. At the entrance, he was not sure if they would shoot him as he approached. Primal instincts overtook his fear. He slowly raised his hands and chopped the two closest Zuloths at the neck. As they fell, he scooped up a rifle and instantly produced a bullet spray. The guard shack's sheathing splinted and the remaining Cybax collapsed in a mass of smoldering circuits and blood. Ross squinted through the opening into the city shadows. Chapter 29 Dawn broke stinging and cold. Ross had wandered the streets during the nighttime hours, finally securing a position on the second floor of an open, jagged-walled building. Food cooking somewhere in the city wafted upward and exacerbated his hunger. From his perch, brilliant sunlight projections pierced the deep clouds above the ocean and highlighted portions of the landing strip. His eyes were still crusty and moist, and his stomach nauseated with death's permanency. Vehicles had landed and returned to space throughout the night. The presence of an Explorer spaceship shuttle near the seaside hangar signaled the beginning of Rafik and Saul's plans to leave the planet and revac the sector. He shouted and his words echoed back into the air. You ruthless Antarian bastard! He steadied himself on the concrete edge, sat down again and placed his head in his hands. Somehow he had finally found equal ground with the old man during his stay on this distant planet. He swung his rifle towards something in the street below. A man with short blonde hair and airy blue eyes was clad in an Elias sect white worship robe. Violence! 
For vengeance sake is not the answer. What do you people know about the real world anyway? Violence is permitted to survive, to remove the Kafka from our midst. For if the Kafka exists, his tentacles stretch throughout humanity and beyond. Humans are a complex mix of emotions. Do not let what thou feel spill outward. It is the balance, the control of the animal within, that is the key to the universe, John Ross. It is thou mind surrendering to the Omas. Release your thoughts when thou must fight. Ross chuckled as fatigue overtook him. His eyes hung heavy as he spoke slowly. How do you know who I am? I don't recognize you. You weren't with the other sect members. Who I am is not important. The sun now cut a thousand geometric bursts across the water. Ross shielded his hand over his eyes. You have no conception of what just happened to me and what just happened to Galactic Command. Something worse than the Marsavic parceling. Death is not final. Stop your highbrow philosophical talk. Ross removed his hand and stared at the man's bleached hair and blue eyes. While I admire your ability to sense certain things, do not grieve. Only see what thou are able to see. The rest is beyond the human mind. Thou must release thou thoughts. Save your soliloquies for the other sect members. A myriad of opportunity exists around all of us. Thou have to believe. Know the truth, know the sea. We are all from the ancient seas. Enter along the sea and go forth into the void alone, where the air grows thin, very dark and cold. Face the Kafka. It is the truth. Know the Koras, the truth. Alone. Alone. The only truth I know is the reality of the pain I feel for my father's murder, my family's revacking, and the potential revacking by the Antarian and his half-human. Know the Koras, Ross. The Kafka cannot encompass the Koras's woven tapestry. It is not the way for those who release. It is not the Koras's way of existence. Stop it! Ross closed his frozen, watery eyes. He shook his head and the sun brightened his eyelids, but the man was gone when he opened his eyes. Ross steadied himself on the wall as he struggled to his feet. The quiescent city bothered him and on the landing strip, steam spewed silently from the SAV into the freezing landing strip air. He grabbed the gun and checked the street. Then he crawled down the building's remaining steer chunks. Where are you? He called for the man. The man's ethereal blue eyes followed his thoughts as he moved onto the road overlooking the landing strip. He watched incredulously as the SAV readied for spaceflight. Only when he let his thoughts go could he have the confidence that he somehow could take on Rafik. He stroked his chin as he faced the sun-covered concrete building shell. Getting into space was his primary concern now. Even his hunger pangs were irrelevant as he proceeded down the sidewalk. He sensed Rafik had evacuated all the cybacks to the ESS ships during the night. His resolve now strengthened, and he was sure that he would get back into space. Ross! Silkowski balanced on his cane and shuffled with Arkov and a few of the SEC members along the icy, wind-blown shore. The doctor wore a wrapped blue knitted hat, exposing his gray beard stubble to the elements. What happened? Where's your father? The Antarian's slashing of his father's throat 
flashed like the sun through the clouds into his thoughts. He tightened his brow and assumed a stolid expression. Rafik, in Saul, attack my ship. My crew has been revacked and my father is dead. Silkowski's eyes motioned as he came into view. He balanced on the cane. I'm sorry. Arkoff embraced Ross. Your father was a brilliant tactician. My father, he said, looking into Arkoff's teary eyes, my father slowly began to understand more than tactics. Did you speak to him about the Elias sect? No. Ross scanned the SAV jets. I was stunned at what he told me before we took our separate paths into the city. He spoke of things beyond our level of understanding. Thou's father was a man who could keep secrets within. Perhaps he retained his philosophy of life. He said some day I would understand, said Ross. Thou's will. I was approached by a member of your sect, a blonde-headed man with blue eyes. I know of no such man. He spoke of things beyond the human mind and how the Kafka could ruin the woven tapestry. He spoke as if he were a sect member. I don't know him. Ross nodded again and looked at the SAV in the sunlight. We need mags. What is your plan? asked Sokoski. My plan is to get the hotel vessel back into space and somehow board one of the ESS ships. Damn that Antarian. He means to extend this Saul domain. It will take command another five days to reach Sigma Antares. Rafik is fully capable with two ESS ships of taking Sigma. Then he has a respectable fleet if he captures the basic Conchu. Man with revacked humans. Exactly. My crew. My family. I have to get aboard one of the ESS ships before they leave for Sigma Antares. I don't understand. Surely command can muster up the support to destroy Rafik. Even if he discovers the fleet at Conchu. Conchu houses a huge number of vessels, Kov. All have dearthing capacity. He could conceivably threaten to dearth five and a half billion people and hold command at bay. This is what I think he'll do. And he does have the military genius to defeat the first wave of command vessels. Command could easily get sucked into this as he gains strength and revacks his ships as he captures them. There are five equally as populated star systems between Sigma Antares and Axiom Baroma. My guess is that they will attack Baroma if they have the fleet at Conchu. If it were just Saul, I wouldn't worry, but Rafik must die. Do thou speak from vengeance or from preservation of human life? Both, he said, studying the figures marching into the distant SAV. Save the planetary populations, Ross, but do not seek retribution. Retribution sometimes never ends. Maybe. Right now I just want to be on the ground waiting if that SAV returns. He looked away from Arkov and back to the strip. The SAV rose above the ground, scattering dust and snow. The delayed hum from the engine stirred Ross's resolve, both as an ESS commander and as a son, to find the Antarian and stop him dead. Colonus. 5B, 4.44 p.m., 14th July, 21.54, Galactic Time, ESS-19, Statement of Record, Commander Christopher Keller recording. ESS-19 is proceeding towards the Scavia Tango star system on search and recovery of vessel ESS-14, Lieutenant Commander Walter Kaczynski commanding. ESS-14 was responding to a craft PR-17 distress signal to outpost 1511. 
distress signal signature was that of Colonel John Ross Sr. Ross and his family, including Commander John Ross, were scheduled downtime on Earth Star. Reports indicate a hotel vessel was appropriated by Commander Ross three weeks ago. Ship's navigation and tracking beacons indicate ESS-14 and ESS-27 are in orbit of Sigma and Taris above the massive military base at Conchu. I will assume that they have taken that base in light of new information. This vessel received a second direct intelligentsia communication from the service of Scavia Tangle, alerting Galactic Command to an aberrant revac human working with the Antarian Rafak. The message is contained here. This is Aristothenes, 24 Humana, 2154 Galactic Time. To all Galactic Command ships, Scavia Tangle has been taken over by a half-Cybac, Saul, a.k.a. Philip O'Hara, escaped from the Pegasus Marichelli Colonus Project, with Dr. Victor Silkowski. Silkowski is incognito, but the planet population is mostly revacked into Cybac beings. Planet has the ability to tug drag. Saul is working with the Antarian Serban Rafik and Commander John Bragg. They all have intentions to reback and conquer the Galactic Command territory. Aristothenes out. The intelligentsia message has been sent to Axiom Baroma. Arrival time is six Earth days. I am now proceeding on a heading to Sigma Antares. Keller commanding ESS 19. Chapter 30. Ross fanned the rifle around the hangar. I knew they were all gone. They abandoned the planet. Now what? Asked Silkowski. We need a transmitter. Check the other hangar in the storage buildings. I'm going down to the hotel vessel. I have to alert command. And cough. See if you can find the tug drag controls. I think you'll find that they're gone too. How do you know this? I just know. I'll meet you back up at the revac plant. Okay, half an hour. Ross gripped the rifle and hustled along the hangar. He spotted the long, sleek vessel in the cold morning sun. But as he ran, he thought about Arku's words. He wanted vengeance more than anything now, and he didn't know how to jettison his hatred of Rafik. As he circled, he leapfrogged the debris across the concrete. The vessel doors were open. The ship's internal coil boosters and thrust pulses were crushed on the gray concrete. Inside the ship, the main control module was ripped from the instrument panel. Ross banged the rifle butt against the hatch frame. Damn! Rerouting a modified control module required coils. He leaped from the chair and straddled the opening. The low sunlight, yellowed grass, and rubbish on the strip added to the dreary isolation of Scabia Tangle. Rafik must have appropriated Cappy's ship. As he looked at the higher, smeared white cloud set in the pale green sky, he quickly surmised he was relegated to the planet's surface. He retreated back inside the hotel vessel and pried the coil from the maintenance panels. The long propulsion tube was bent, and the remaining silver coils were dented. He flipped on the auxiliary light panels and ran his fingers over the hacked corrugated edges leaving 40 or maybe 45% of the coal modules, although apparently damaged beyond repair, was not a prudent move. He backed out and kicked the hull. Under the navigation pack was an open space once housing the frequency communications center. He thought about his own attack on Rafik. At least he had injured the Antarian with a thrust to his beady crimson eyes. 
Although command procedure dictated he stop the Antarian from harming a square centimeter of command territory, his inner feelings were not easily contained. He crossed the concrete with an overriding resolve to kill Rafik. Silkowski was stationed at the plant panels and surrounded by a contingent of resistance fighters. Ross moved up the ramp. Status, Kov. They left their Polonis and revacking components intact. Sure. They have your portable and sweeper units. The tug drags are gone from the island, and most importantly, there's no Caleb Zoria. He stood and faced Ross. This is my fault. Your family and second-in-command are not here. Well, I have to get off this damn planet. Sokoski raised his bushy gray brows. Then the hotel vessel, inoperative. The coils left behind have been crushed. They knew what they were doing. The hangars are empty. I mean, no spacecraft. Ross wandered to a side ladder and sat down on the rungs. He put his hand over his eyes as he thought about his father's brutal murder. I keep repeating, if they capture the fleet at Conchu and have two ESS vessels, they can attack the Central Command at Axion Baroma. I understand your concern, but you've told me the majority of the fleet is at Baroma. How can they take on Galactic Command? asked Silkowski. Ross looked up and across the bay. Surprise! They'll simply enter the area in ESS ships and revac crews. They won't be aggressive. I have to get into space. Silkowski leaned forward on his cane. I don't mean to doubt you, Commander, but even if you do get into space, somehow I have to get to Rafik. Saul can't effectively command any ESS vessel. I want them both dead. But he could rely on others. Ross's eyes moistened. Again, he vividly saw his father falling to the bloody concrete. He wants to avenge Marigold and revitalize the Antarian Sanctum. One Antarian cannot disable Galactic Command. Oh, he's brilliant. Antarians are crafty. He can do it, Doctor. Chapter 31 Sir, our frequency to Sigma Antares is being blocked, said Beck. His cow eyes opened wider. The source of that scrambling are the two ESS vessels at Conchu. That's not good, said Pascal. Kellis second-in-command checked his own monitors, as if he were operating on an ESS emergency speed. He's right. Our frequencies to Axon Baroma has been compromised. When will command get warnings about this? They won't. Keller puckered his lips and exhaled as he headed for the science alcove. He slowly hit his closed fist against the support. I have to assume that that Antarian is in control of the fleet at Conchu. Signal is scattered and reflected. Such a move is an act of war. I'm aware of that, Mr. Beck. Let's hear that message one more time. Chris, if Rafik has the ships, he or that refact human has ESS-14 and 27. They aren't answering our frequencies, even on AC. And now this, this blocking, said Keller. Commander Ross was obviously diverted from his family's gathering on Earthstar. Family is missing, and Ross appropriated a hotel vessel. Play back the frequency. This is Aristothenes, 24 Humana, 2154 Galactic Time. To all Galactic Command ships, Scavia Tangle has been taken over by a half Cybac, Saul, aka Philip O'Hara, escaped from the Pegasus Marichelli Colonus Project with Dr. Victor Silkowski. Silkowski is incognito, but the planet population is mostly revacked into Cyvac beings. Planet has the ability to tug drag. 
Saul is working with the Antarian, Serban Rafik, and Commander John Bragg. They all have intentions to reback and conquer the Galactic Command territory. Aristothenes out. Pascal moved over from his alcove. Keller looked into his frightened, dark eyes. Chris, I think your suspicions are correct. We have to assume that something's going on here with the ESS ships. Possessing the fleet of Conchu would allow them to power revac the entire population. What do you suggest, Jose? Pascal pressed his lips, then his brow tightened. We could be within drac range of Conchu and the two ESS ships in 78 hours. Keep trying to raise frequencies, but you need to contact Admiral Ebert. I'd rather side on the severity of this. Get more of the fleet to this area from Baroma now. Well, I agree with that, said Keller, but that will take time. My recommendation is to change Ebert's orders and destroy the two command vessels. Keller closed his eyes for a second and nodded. ESS vessels had never been fired on by one another, never. It's not very often that ESS vessels have been commanded by Antarians either, said Beck. Well, you got that right. Chris, you can't let Rafik move the ships from Conchu. He could conceivably move against Baroma. After all that's happened with the Marsavik parceling, to lose what's left of Galactic Command and to have millions revacked under that one Antarian. I understand all this. You ever talked to Ross about Rafik before and after Marigal? Rafik is a legend. I don't understand how he could have escaped Marigal. But if he is on one of those ESS ships, he'll revac Sigma Antares and head into the sector. Then, my friend, Command has a significant problem. Keller had just poked his fork into a hefty steak when Pascal moved quickly from the walking corridor. His dark eyes were set on Keller, and his gaze was so intense, Keller set the fork back on the plate. Then he stood as Pascal approached. Jose, why are you off the locust? Chris, there's a slowly massing power source near Conchu. Keller paused for a second as he sorted through the information. He stared at his severed stake on the plate and then looked back to Pasquale. Directed out here? Presently, no. That's why I came back here. You think we should veer off and wait for command? There's no waiting for command. Can't contact them on frequency. We need to continue and knock out 27 and 14, he said as he returned to the table. He remained standing as he picked up the fork and placed the savory steak in his mouth. Chris, what about the tug drag Colonel Ross mentioned in his frequency? Keller cut the steak with a serrated cast knife. His words were mixed between chewing the meat fibers. Doesn't sound like it has the intensity to tug drag, right? Well, not now. The Polonus extrapolations at this rate would not indicate a tug drag. Keller squinted as he sat down. Jose, let me finish my meal, will you? Call me only if the energy calculations reach a critical estimate. Yes, Commander, he said as he turned. And Jose! Pascal stopped and looked back. You did the right thing. Thank you, sir. Keller watched him enter the starboard walking corridor. He looked at his dinner and then pushed it aside. Pascal's words hung in his mind like the last hunk of steak in his throat. He guzzled his moisture-beaded water and then headed for the walking corridor's curved alcove monitor. Tracks are fully charged, said Comier from the Sky Pilot Base. Thank you, Mr. Comier, said Keller, peering at Pasquale above the alcove. Time, Jose. Sixteen minutes till the ESS vessel 27 is within range, sir. 
I want a complete vessel destruction. Same with 14. No exceptions. Even if John is on there himself. He moved down to the forward mag and stared at the vessel, blue in the dim light. Sir, an aberrant frequency, number AJOP09087 1K, intercepted from Rafik on ESS 14. Said Beck from up top. I think he let it seep through the scrambling. Keller leaned back, but kept his eyes on ESS 27 and the star backdrop. Right. If they had wanted to shield it, they would have used an AZ frequency. Message details another 350,000 people, Revac, sir. Sure, he'd want to get that out. This should never have happened. I don't underestimate him. How he slipped away from John after Marigot is unbelievable. 14 minutes, 16 seconds. All right. Wait, said Pascal. ESS 27 is slowing. So is 14. Keller retreated to his console. Mr. Comier, Drax on ESS 27 coils. Lock, Commander. Six minutes and dropping. Good. Status, Drac on both ships, Jose. No Drac activity. What? He asked, placing both hands on the console. On the screen, both ships depicted in white were looping outward and slowing. Why would they slow and not fight? Sir! Yelled Pascal. The top drag. A series of thick beams pulsed off the planet. It reminded him of the Marsarvic people's parceling of the galaxy. Divert course, 90 degrees, full breakaway, cruising speed at earliest juncture. A high-pitched and persistent shuddering indicated the ship accelerated toward breakaway speed. The engineer's shaky voice vibrated on the speakers. Commander, I don't see how we can outrun those beams. We have to, damn it. I got sucked right into this one. They let me think I had them, and then they go and deploy the tug drags. Damn. The monitor indeed showed 19 veering away, but the blue readout numbers in the lower right-hand corner, the beam would encompass the ship in 82 seconds. Pascal leapfrogged down from his alcove. His dark eyes were moist. There's no way we get out of this. Keller gritted his teeth. Excuse me if I try. We were the last barrier to them taking the sector. He banged the console. Calm air. Relocate those tracks. Target the tug drag beams. Yes, sir. He snapped. Kellogg monitored the drac alignment, but he briefly closed his eyes, as he was fully cognizant of the futility of his order. He shook his head, and the dracs were locked onto the approaching tug drags. Dracs are locked, sir. Fire dracs! Dracs fired. Three blue drac beams shot across the outer monitor. Kellogg glanced toward the forward mag. Both ESS vessels were at oblique angles behind ESS-19, and the massive green beams were bunched between them. His own drag attack looked almost pathetic. The drags bounced off the approaching tug drags. Keller closed his eyes again. Your orders, sir? Asked Pasquale in an almost inaudible voice. The tug drag beams now dominated the screen, and the green light's reflection spilled onto the locust. I'm not surrendering my vessel to that Antarian. I won't do it. Three ESS ships can threaten Baroma. Tug drags have encompassed the vessel, said Beck. Sir, we cannot break the tug drag, and the two ESS vessels can attack us at will, said Pascal. I have an incoming frequency, sir, shouted Beck, from ESS 27. Keller's fists clamped. Good, let it play. On the forward mag, a tiny square appeared. He was taken back by a man with flesh ripped down his cheeks and neck. The man pointed at him. He wore a gray baseball cap with a spreading yellow sun above the visor. Revax, 
Who the hell are you? Grumbled Keller. Your ship appropriated. It has been a part of the Salda name you will be. Release my ship. Galactic Command will decimate you and your ragtag bunch of refried. Formidable, we are. Where's the Antarian? Hugh Lindsay moved into the viewer. Hugh, thank God. Maybe you can talk some sense into these people. Reback and implement. Lindsay's eyes were fixed and he showed no emotion. Great. Is this the future of the sector? First we're transposed by the Marsavik people and now this? Hugh, where is Commander Ross? Open your sky pilot doors, Chris. Submit you will. As have the 400,000 on Sigma Antares. You'll have to take this ship, my friend. Take it we will, with tug tracks, revac, and implement. Beck, shut him off, shut off Saul. Kella stomped back to the command alcove as Lindsay's image dissolved on the mag. Jose, I want a full armed rank force in the Sky Pilot base. If he thinks he's just going to walk on this ship and have us all revac, Chris. Keller looked up at his mustache second in command. They have tug drags and two ESS ships. We can't win this battle. Keller stood and climbed to the rim. Then you know what? Now I'm going to take as many of those sons of bitches down as I can. Keller gripped the sky pilot console as the ship shook violently and power surges prompted the overhead lights to flicker. Damn him! The pilot bays are open, Commander, said Pasquale. He looked up slowly from his monitor. He's coming in. Keller grabbed his drac rifle and ran from the console and threw his armed ranks toward the towering bay doors. Under no circumstances do I want to surrender this vessel. Surrendering this vessel will threaten the heart of our fleet at Baroma. And that is a sentence to be revacked, said Pasquale. Keller looked through the ranks, fearful faces. Most of these kids hadn't even fought in the Antarian War. These people have all been revacked. Their minds are molded in one direction. They can't even think on their own. You can't take them and you can't force them back. The outside doors rumbled open and the approaching SAV was backdropped by a starry spread. He marched back with Pasquale. On the monitor, the SAV docked securely in place. The outside bay doors rumbled shut and the air flooded inside. I thought we shut that off. Why are we getting air in here? asked Pasquale. Keller brought up the monitoring status on the screen as, as Polonis came over the speaker. They have remotely overridden air values. Hugh Lindsay, said Keller. Scanners showed 15 people inside the lock. Several people used portable climbers on the bay doors. What the hell are they doing now? Unknown, said Pasquale. Open doors, Polonis. Doors are locked, answered the Polonis. Then override. That is not possible. Circuits have been disconnected. Keller kicked the bottom of the console. All ranks, assume firing positions. Drax won't respond to the doors, Chris, said Pasquale. I understand that. We'll be ready if they come through, he eyed the monitor. Polonis, what are they installing? Unknown. Well, what do you know? High-pitched modulating sound filled the sky pilot bays and grew incredibly loud. Pasquale's eyes opened wide. They are preparing to reback us. No! cried Keller. Thoughts were scrambled as the bay doors slowly moved upward. Hugh Lindsay walked ahead of the shorter, fleshy-faced man that he recognized from the frequency transmission. This man's face was ruddy and ripped. 
He moved around Lindsay as Keller fell to his knees. His voice was slurry and loud. Remap and implement. He blocked his ears and his ranks fell to the floor as every cell in his brain buzzed. The massive gray birders and upper white disc lights were blurry. His ranks had fallen. He held his ears as his anger subsided and he no longer had the urge to think about anything. His thoughts were pure and his duty was clear. Read that and implement. I can tell you this about the next and last episode. The fight is not over and becomes very personal. Next week is the sixth and final installment of Galactic Command Reunion. I'm Robert P. Fitton, flying off from my ringside seat for this last episode. Godspeed, Commander Ross. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.